Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. And um, as you sit down, please do grab a Bible. It's on, our reading is T Samuel 9. It's on page 312 in the Pew Bibles. And with the Bible in one hand, you might find it helpful to have in the other hand a little uh, outline that you'll have received on the way in. It might just help you to spot where we're heading over the next few minutes. But uh, let me pray for each of us tonight as we turn back to God's word. Father, we thank you that you speak to us through the words of Scripture. And so we pray for your help tonight, both to listen carefully, but also to believe, but even more than that, to live lives that are transformed. We pray for your spirit at work in us tonight. Please help me to be faithful as I speak and help each one of us um, to leave here tonight living lives that are different. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. The Blind Side is a film about a boy named Mike. Mike is a homeless, traumatized black boy. He was born into a world of violence and murder. His, his dad is now dead. His mother is a drug addict. He was forced to leave home at a young age. And, and now he, he roams the streets with no home. Uh, occasionally, he finds a sofa to sleep on, but often he doesn't. Mike fits in nowhere. He is known by, loved by, cared for by no one. His life appears utterly hopeless. And then one cold night, as Mike is walking along the road on his own, late at night, a car pulls over next to him. And in that moment, Mike's life is changed forever. Because in that car is a family. Uh, They've noticed him walking on his own, and they ask him if he has anywhere to stay. And they welcome him into the car, and into their home, into their lives, and into their family. And because of this family... Mike gets an education, he receives love, he begins to be able to talk about his uh, terrible past, and as the story um, finishes, uh, Mike becomes uh, an American football player, and he becomes one of the most famous professional players of his generation. It's a true story, a story that is all about kindness, undeserved unprovoked, surprising, and life-changing kindness as this one family pulls over and looks after Mike. As we hear about that kind of kindness, it makes our heart want to sing. There is something profoundly beautiful about seeing someone's life so impacted by the kindness of another And tonight, as we look at 2 Samuel 9, we see that kind of kindness at work. For we have in one hand a life of utter hopelessness come into contact with a person of utter kindness, unprovoked kindness, life-transforming kindness. But here's the great news. Tonight, as we see the kindness at work in T. Samuel, 
It's a kindness that is not just for one person back then. It is a kindness that is on offer for any who would turn and accept it. This time we've been working our way through 2 Samuel. It is 1000 BC. David is king. And last week in 2 Samuel 8, we saw David securing a land for his people. They now experience peace and protection from their enemies. And under this good king, the people experience a reign of justice and righteousness. It is a wonderful picture. But tonight we discover something else about the reign of David. His reign, his kingdom, is a kingdom of kindness. And the purpose of T. Samuel is to make us confident about the kindness of God's king. But more than that, look at verse 3. The king, that's David, asked, Is there no one still left at the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? The kindness of 2 Samuel 9, David's kindness, is really a, a picture of, of God's kindness. And tonight we see how the kindness of God reaches out through his king David and transforms a life with surprising, extraordinary, undeserved kindness. And although it is an ancient story, what happens here in 2 Samuel 9 is a, it's a picture, it's a model that helps us understand the kindness that comes to us through King Jesus. For in Jesus, there is an offer of extraordinary, surprising, undeserved, gracious kindness for those who ask for it. So why can we be confident about the kindness of God and his king? Well, let's dive into 2 Samuel 9. And you'll see in the handout, first of all, we discover a most unlikely candidate We pick up the story at the point when King David is now a famous king. Other kings are coming to him to pay homage and to bring tribute. You can imagine at the palace, a, a queue of people every morning with um, bags of gold and silver coming to praise this famous king because wherever David goes, he wins every victory. He's a powerful king. Of course, power and fame are a heady mixture. History is littered with kings who have drunk deeply from that cup and have become cruel and vicious. So what about King David? Verse one begins, David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul? Just pause there for a moment. Remember Saul was the first king of Israel Saul had also tried to kill David, I reckon, at least 10 times. There was a real enmity between King Saul and David. But now Saul is dead and David is king. But Saul's descendants, his house, would be direct rivals to the reign of King David. And if you've ever read through other parts of the Bible, one and two kings, then you'll know that the kind of typical policy of kings in those days were, was to, to secure your throne by killing every other rival that you could think of. And so we should expect David to be asking in verse 1, is there anyone left in the house of Saul so that I may kill them and secure my throne? But that is not how the verse goes. Is there anyone left to whom I can show kindness 
And of course, we know the answer is yes. There is someone left, but, but David doesn't know that yet. And that is the first important thing to note, the utter obscurity of the person who's about to experience David's kindness. I guess the question that he kind of launches out there in verse one is heard by his servants, but uh, they don't know about anyone either. But they manage to track down a man who does. Verse two. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David. And so David asks, verse three, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answers, there is still a son of Jonathan. But instead of giving his name, he simply says, he is crippled in both feet. What a, what a way to introduce a character into the Bible. No name, just he's a cripple. It's as if Zeba can, can't even bring himself to say the name of the son. We know who this man is. Back in T. Samuel 4, we are told that on the day Jonathan and Saul were killed in battle with the Philistines, in the ensuing panic and crisis, one of Jonathan's sons, Mephibosheth, or Mephi, as I'll call him from now on, In that crisis, uh, he, he fell, and he was crippled in his feet from that point onwards. And just to be clear, in, in David's day, there was no employment laws that ensured the rights for all. There were no measures taken to ensure good access. And so to be crippled in David's day meant a life of utter destitution, a life of begging, a, a bleak future, and so I think Ziba is basically saying to the famous and powerful king, why would you bother with someone like that? A no one, a cripple. But it gets worse in verse four. Where is he? The king asked Ziba. He's at the house of Micaiah, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. I just want to pause there. I want to teach us all some Hebrew tonight, a little crash course in Hebrew, just two words, it's okay. Lo means not. Okay so far? Uh, debar means thing. Lo debar means not a thing. Nowhere. If you had met Mephi at a party and got chatting to him and, and said to him, oh, so um, where are you from? He would have said, nowhere. I'm from nowhere. Lodabar. And so here we have an obscure, unknown, unnamed cripple from nowhere. But it gets even worse. Verse five, so King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Micaiah, son of Amiel. Uh, we can work it out that it's been around, we think, 15 years since Saul died and David became king. And so imagine the boy Mephi growing up from the age of five, knowing that you had been born into the wrong family. Your dad is dead and you are enemies of the new king. 
You can imagine him thinking, my, my best shot at life is to live somewhere utterly obscure. Let's go for Lo de Bar, a, a nowhere town. I'll just keep my head down so no one knows where I am or who I am. And maybe, just maybe, if I'm lucky, I'll get through life without the true king finding me and killing me. That's his best shot at life for Mephi. But now it's all over. Verse 5, he's being taken by the new king, David, from his Lodabar nowhere hiding place to the capital city. You can imagine Mephi on that uh, long journey to Jerusalem, soldiers around him, thinking the game is up. I've had my time, I've been found out. I was born into the wrong family. I am an enemy of the king. And so here is a most unlikely candidate to receive kindness from King David, an unknown, unnamed cripple from nowhere who is also an enemy of the king. I imagine the moment in verse 6 as Mephi has now arrived into Jerusalem. And he's, he comes to David, he's summoned in. You can imagine him uh, crawling on his hands and knees, face to the ground, paying honor to David. And then the words he dreaded to hear all his life from the king, Mephibosheth. The king knows his name. He's been tracked down. His time is up. You can imagine the dread in his whisper in verse 6. Your servant, as Matthew knows, he's about to die. Don't rush to the end of the story too quickly. We know how it goes, and it's wonderful, but, but don't go there yet, because Matthew doesn't know what happens at the end of verse 6. 2 Samuel is a model of what the kingdom of God is like under King Jesus. And Mephi is not the only unlikely candidate in the world to be welcomed in by King Jesus. And he is, I think, a, a picture that helps us understand our plight before the true king, to see how unlikely a candidate we are before him. There are seven billion people in the world at the moment. Have we ever wondered if God knows about us individually, by name, or are we some obscure, unnamed person? Does he care about our life, what we are facing? At times we can feel very obscure. We don't live in low bar, but perhaps we feel like it, trapped in a mundane job, no real hope of that ever changing. And even if we are not physically crippled in the days when that meant no hope in life we can often feel like we have little to offer little to give which marks our life out as being noteworthy and even if we think we are famous and successful amongst our fellow humans why should the God of the universe who made the sun and the moon and the stars with just a word from his mouth why should he think anything of us Of course, our greatest problem is the problem of Mephi, that we were all born into the wrong family. We were born into the family of Adam, into a family of sin and rebellion, 
Each one of us here have rebelled against the king. We are, by nature, his enemies, awaiting death. As the apostle Paul put it in Colossians, we were all enemies of God, cut off from him and deserving death. Mephi is a most unlikely candidate, but in so many ways, he is a picture of the plight of every person before God's king. We will get on to the good news in just a moment, but I hope we can see that there is nothing about Mephi in and of himself that makes him eligible for kindness. But look at verse one again. David asked, is there anyone still left at the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Or or verse seven, David says to Mephi, I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I put a reference there on the handout to to 1 Samuel 20, which takes us to a a conversation between Jonathan and David before Jonathan's death. And in that conversation, Jonathan and David agree a formal relationship, a, a covenant between them. They're great friends. And in that relationship, David promises to Jonathan that he will always care for and protect, show kindness to Jonathan's children, his descendants. And even after many years, David has not forgot his promise to Jonathan. And here we see him acting on that promise. And the pattern here is always the pattern when it comes to God and his people and his kingdom. It's the promise of the king and not the eligibility of the candidate that secures kindness. And so too with us tonight, None of us are eligible in and of ourselves to expect gracious kindness from God and his king. But we only come in confidence because of a promise made. A promise that God will grow his people, the church, that he welcomes people in from every nation. A promise that for any who come to Jesus and trust in his cross, there is forgiveness. Not because we deserve it or are eligible, but because a promise has been made. And it is because of God's promise that rebels like me and like you are welcomed. A most unlikely candidate, and next, a most surprising offer. We pick up the story, verse six, we can imagine Mephi on his face, trembling in fear. And then the most extraordinary words, verse seven. Do not be afraid, David said to him. Instead of death, here's an offer of protection. Don't be afraid. Mephi had every reason to be afraid, but David has great news. And his command to Mephi, do not be afraid, is one of the most wonderful commands in the world. It is a command that gets repeated throughout the Bible at various points. Think of the shepherds cowering in fear before the angels, hearing the words, do not be afraid, 
Think of Jesus as many people came to him and bowing down before him in fear at his awesome power. And he said, do not be afraid. Why are you afraid? Jesus, God's ultimate king, came to take away fear, to bring protection, not death. Good news, not fear. And so verse 7 is a wonderful hint of better things to come under King Jesus. But look at how verse 7 continues. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul. Here is provision. Now, of course, lots of land isn't much use to someone who is crippled. They, they can't work it themselves. But David knows this. And so look at the provision he makes, verse 10. Speaking to Zeba, you and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for Mephi and bring in the crops so that my master's grandson may be provided for. So here is provision. Here's the land that you need, and then here, here are the servants that you need to work the land for you. And with that set up, food will come in. No more destitution for the cripple, Mephi. But more than that, verse 7 continues, and you will always eat at my table. Mephi already has the food he needs. That's already been sorted out. This final promise is all about position, status, a place at the king's table, a place of tremendous honor, and just in case we missed the point, David reminds Mephi three more times that is his place. Verse 11, to Mephi Bosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Verse 13, he lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. It's almost too good to be true. Far beyond what could have been expected. From low Debar to Jerusalem from obscure poverty to the king's table. And so imagine it day after day as the bell rings and meals are called, Mephi there hobbling and shuffling in, into the king's presence, into his seat at the table, an incredible visual daily reminder of the king's kindness. Protection, provision, and a place here then is no mere toleration but rather extraordinary extravagant gracious kindness this is the kind of king David is because this is the kind of God he serves I wonder if you just noticed the contrast between the kind King David and, and Ziba uh, Saul's um, servant we know Ziba is a man of means. We read that he has lots of servants. He also knows about Mephi, that Mephi's a cripple, that he must need help. But there's no sign that Ziba has done anything in the past to reach out and help one of Jonathan's sons. He is aloof to the need, and he only steps in and helps Mephi when he's told to by the king. Later on in T. Samuel, we'll discover that Ziba's desire to help Mephi is only surface deep, and when circumstances change, he wounds Mephi terribly. 
but not the king. His kindness is not just political expediency or superficial. This is heartfelt, enduring kindness from King David. When Jesus came into the world, he shared a table with prostitutes and tax collectors. He came to search out, to seek those who were lost. He came for the sick, not the healthy. He came for unlikely candidates, those with no hope. He freely offered mercy to any who would turn to him for help. And as Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, he did something that even great David could not do. He didn't just welcome the lame. Jesus healed the lame. A foretaste of life in the kingdom. And when the kingdom does come in all its fullness, it will be a day of of feasting around the king's table, a day without fear as we rejoice before the king, and it, it will be a day when, as the prophets foretold, the lame leap with joy. This is the kindness of the king, pictured here in David as he welcomes Mephi, but fulfilled as Jesus welcomes in sinners, the rebels, and gives us the most surprising offer of eternal protection, provision, and position before his throne. And so be confident about the kindness of God's king. Well, just as we finish, a few thoughts by way of application. 2 Samuel 9 is a great antidote to our pride. In almost every sphere of life, success and entry relies on what we do. University depends on our exam results. The job depends on our CV and interview. A place on the team depends on our skills. And if we make it in, then we become proud and self-confident. But a place at the king's table only comes to us through the king's kindness. Mephi had it right, didn't he, when he said, in response to the kindness of the king, verse eight, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And that is the right response when we realize our, our plight before the king of kings. And so 2 Samuel 9 is a great antidote to our pride. 2 Samuel 9 is also a great encouragement when we struggle to believe God is kind. I think we can struggle to believe his kindness for lots of reasons. Maybe it's um, because of our own personal sin. Perhaps even this week we've succumbed to a sin that we thought we had beaten And yet it's back with a vengeance. And we've fallen and we are overcome with guilt. We've let ourselves down. We've let the Lord down. And because we've done it so many times before, we wonder if this time is the end. Our final chance is gone. We wonder if God could still be kind to us. Maybe it's our circumstances. 
prayer request that seems to go unanswered, a, a whole series of setbacks one after another. I've, I've often noticed when I've, I've sat with people going through hard times that so often in life, sufferings and trials seem to come in waves to particular people. And I don't know why. So for, for one particular person, the car might break down unexpectedly on the way to the doctor where they find out that the, the news is bad from the results. And on the way home, they get a terrible phone call from one of their children about some suffering in their lives. And it, it just seems to all happen at once. Not always, but it, it just, it can. And if you've been in one of those moments of, of severe trial, it's easy to wonder if God is still kind, if he knows and cares and is moved by our plight. And as we cry out, at times the heavens can feel like brass and the cries of sorrow and confusion go unheeded. And then we are sorely tempted to wonder if God is really kind. But 2 Samuel 9 shows us God's extraordinary kindness. We see it in his King David. We see it most fully in his King Jesus who died on the cross so that rebels could be welcomed in. I very much look forward to meeting Mephi in the new creation. I look forward to hearing his account of that day when his fear turned to joy. But it won't just be Mephi I will want to talk to. There will be story after story, voice after voice, rising up in praise and wonder at the kindness of our God and his king. And for eternity, as we sit around the king's banquet table, we will forever be trophies of his grace, cripples, rebels, nobodies from nowhere, but loved and welcomed by the kindness of our God. That is what God is like. And so it is no wonder Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice at your kindness to unlikely candidates like us. We thank you that your kindness has come to us. You have reached out to us in your grace and transformed our lives. Please help us to never forget your kindness, we pray. And we thank you, Father, that one day your kingdom will come in all its fullness. And what a day of joy that will be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.